Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our podcast with others. Now, we take you to the pulpit of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. Luke chapter 14. When Jesus left, when Jesus left this earth, he gave us a job. He gave us a job description. We call it the Great Commission. What is it? To go and what? Make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. You know, one of the things that I think we do a good job with as, as church members and as churches is supporting people and sending them to all nations. I really do. I really think that is a, a positive thing that we do. Uh, when I first started, I think it was like I preached for two Wednesday nights or Sunday nights, and then I didn't preach again for like six weeks because we had a... Uh, a number of our missionaries come in and, and, and do their reports. And each one of those works is very valuable and very important to the kingdom in those particular areas. And we support those works in a very diligent way. And, and I think it is a very positive thing for us to support works in other places. But the danger of that, the danger of that is we get so wrapped up in the idea, well, I'm, we're supporting other people that that then means that I don't have to do anything personally because, well, I'm giving money to the church and they're supporting other people. We're, we're supporting other people with that. We're going to all nations. But all nations also includes where? Here. Here. You know, in the South, man, it's hard not to imagine a place where there's not a church on every corner, isn't it? I mean, it's there are church buildings everywhere. How many? I don't know. How 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 many church buildings would you guess are in Haleville? Fifty? Someone more or less than that? Or does that sound, you know, probably when we lived in McMinnville, and I think it's still the case in Warren County, there were fifty-five churches of Christ alone in that one county. 55 churches of Christ. That's not counting all the other churches that were out there, okay? It's, it's strange to us to think of a place where there's not a church building on every corner. But did you know there are places in our country where that is simply just the truth? That's the fact of the matter. And that's a sad testament, I think, to the church in some degree because we've spent so much time and effort going to all nations that we have forgotten our own backyard. Jesus tells the apostles, He said, you start in Jerusalem, you go to Judea, and then you go where? To all the world, to the ends of the earth. You start in your own backyard, then you go to your neighbor's backyard, if you will, and then you go everywhere else. And as children of God, we've got to do a better job of spreading the word where we live. And that starts by making disciples. That is what God told us to do. He said, or Jesus, he said, you're going to go and you're going to make disciples. Well, this was not just something that, that Jesus talks about in the very last moment of his life. It's something that he had been working these guys toward through his entire ministry. And in chapter 14 of the book of Luke, starting in verse 25, he, he begins to talk to them about this and trying to get them to understand the significance to the commitment of being a disciple. Let's read this together again. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife 
and children, his brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now imagine for just a second, this is, this is the setting that I find interesting at times in Jesus' life. All these people are following Jesus and he's, he's really become known for his miracles and feeding people and all these different things. And all these people are following him and they're following him, I think, for the show. They're following him for the show. And that, that would probably be aggravating. He just turns around and goes, hey, unless you hate your family, you, you can't have anything to do with me. Now, that would kind of be a letdown, right? Like if that's the, you've been following him for say three days and you're waiting for him to, you know, turn some stone to bread, want some show, and then he turns around and goes, hey, if you don't hate your mom and dad, you, you can't be a part of this. That'd kind of be disappointing. Like, really? Is, is, that, is that what we're doing? But he, he's trying to thin the crowd here. He's trying to thin the herd. Christianity has become a, a, a religion of make everybody feel like they can be a part, right? Jesus said, no, it's about commitment first and foremost. And the stronger the commitment, usually the smaller the group, right? The stronger the commitment, usually the smaller the group. But when you've got a small group of strongly committed people, how effective can that group of people be? The church starts with 12 men, 12 men who are committed and they change the world. Let's keep going. Verse 27, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will, be ridicule, will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the coming king uh, with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still long away off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, if any of you does not give up everything, he cannot come, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has an ear, let him hear. So Jesus gives us five very vivid images, okay, of what it means to be a disciple, what the cost is to be a disciple. And I want us to take those five images, let's break them down and talk about them, and maybe give yourself a greater understanding of what Jesus expects out of you in your life. And a couple of these we'll talk more in depth than others because uh, we, we could spend a lot of time with them, but we'll, we'll stay within our time frame tonight, hopefully. The first image is that of a family. And it's the idea that we need to love Jesus supremely. We need to love Jesus supremely. Does it surprise you that Jesus says that you have to hate all these people to follow Him? Because isn't Jesus' message a lot of times a message of love? Love your what? Neighbor. Love your neighbor. He talks about loving those who are the least of you. You know, taking care of those type of people. And so here all of a sudden it's almost like He changes the message, right? It's like he's maybe being a little hypocritical. But Jesus has the tendency of, of using his words in ways to challenge us. He uses a lot of different styles of, of, of wording things to kind of get his point across. In the Greek, the word hate means something maybe a little bit different than it does in the English. In the English, it carries a very harsh tone, doesn't it? If I were to tell you that I hate Tyler, how would you feel about me? Not, not very well. Tyler wouldn't either. In the Greek, it means simply to prefer 
above. There's a difference there, isn't it? He's not saying that you have to have these harsh feelings towards your family. He's saying, though, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, you better prefer Jesus in that relationship over your family. That's the important thing to understand here. He's not saying hate them like we teach to hate, but he's saying your love for Jesus and your preference for Jesus should come above everything else. And you should prefer him above everything else in your life. Let's move on to the second idea. Like I said, some we'll just hit on and some we'll spend a little time with. He says that we have to carry our cross. In other words, we have to live like a dead person. We have to live like a dead person. The image of Jesus using a cross is something to the audience that was right in front of him that would have been very vivid. Because the most effective way that the Romans had decided to come up with to, to, to kill people in a corporate way was to do what? Hang them on a cross. And as you see with Jesus, as you are punished and you're on your way to your crucifixion, what did you have to do with your cross? You had to carry it with you. So everybody that saw you walking down the road with their, your cross, what did they know about you? They knew that you were on your way to die. A crucifixion was a gruesome death. The cross was an image of sheer horror in the day of Jesus. Now, that image has changed a little bit 2,000 years removed. How many of you wore some type of jewelry that had a cross on it this morning? Anybody? A few people maybe? How many of your Bibles maybe have crosses on them? How many of you have decorative crosses at home? They're, they're pretty and they, they're, they're soft and, and they don't have harsh wooden you know, splintered edges. But let, let me put it to you this way. How would you feel if uh, next week I was standing at the front door and I'm handing out gold-plated electric chairs to wear around your neck? What image does that give? Is that a very positive image? Is that an image of, of, of comfort? No, it's an image of what? Death. It's an image of death. And I think if we're not careful, we can soften the image of the cross because the cross is an image of death. Now, through the cross, we have found hope. But the idea of carrying and bearing our cross is not an idea of something easy, simple, and pretty. Paul understood this. In Galatians, in, in three different places, he gives some verses or some words of the power of, of living a cross-carrying life. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2 and verse 20. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. 5 and verse 24. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Chapter 6 and verse 14. What he's painting the picture of here is there is a spiritual crucifixion that happens that I put to death the things of this world. We have to pick up our cross and we have to live a life of a dead person. But you see, through Christ, when we are dead, we are set free. You'll never be truly liberated until you understand 
what being crucified with Christ truly means. Now let's keep going. The next thing he talks about is a tower. And considering the value of a good finish. Jesus presents this image of a man who's decided to build something and he's not able to finish it because he doesn't have the funds. He's, he's just kind of stopped mid-project. And as people see it, they know, hey, this guy, this guy didn't have enough. This guy didn't plan properly. He, he had all these big ideas and these big dreams and none of them worked out the way he wanted to. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says this, Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it in on to completion. The reason I think that verse is important here is because I want you to understand something. Own your own. Own your own. You can never finish the race that is called Christianity. Own your own. You can never truly be a faithful disciple. But what we need to understand, and it starts with the things we talked about this morning, that once we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are, giving, we are given a, a power and ability to overcome things in a spiritual way, in a way that brings us power from God. We have the ability to no longer backslide in our faith. But that's a decision that we make. Even though we have the power and the ability, we have to make the decision that I am going to finish strong. You know, the Bible is full of people who, who started out strong and didn't finish strong. And sometimes we kind of glaze over those parts of their life because we don't like them as much. When we think of Noah, what do we think of? The ark, right? Noah saved mankind, right? Because he was so faithful. But how did his life end? His life ended as an old drunk man doing just kind of some stupid things. That's the last images that we have of Noah. He didn't finish strong. We read of, of um, other people throughout Scripture who started strong and then finished so terribly. I had a guy tell me one time, and I absolutely hate this mindset. He said, as far as getting to heaven goes, he said, as long as I just slide in, I'll be happy. That's not finishing strong. That's settling for less than what God wants out of you. We need to finish strong in our life and we need to count the cost and realize the value of a good finish. The next thing he mentions is a king. A king who's getting ready to go to war and surrendering to a stronger king. And I think this is a very simple but very powerful illustration. In this image, as he's describing these two kings, one outnumbered by the other, he's talking about us and God. I do believe he's talking about us and God. We, we, we don't have the ability to stand up against God and win in that struggle. We don't. So are we going to be willing to humbly allow ourselves to come under God's control and allow Him to rule our life? And then finally, and we'll spend a little bit of time on this thought because I think it's a powerful thought. He talks about salt. And the idea of staying pure to preserve goodness in this world. Salt kind of comes up a couple of different times in the life of Jesus. And he, he shares several different things, but they all kind of come back to the same idea of, of the way salt affects the things that it comes into contact with and then how we should affect things that, that we come into contact with. Salt was very valuable in Jesus' time. Roman soldiers a lot of time were paid in salt rations 
which is where the idea of being worth your salt kind of originated from. And since they weren't allowed or allowed, they weren't able to, to keep meat cold like we do, what would they do? They would salt cure it. And so salt was an important preservative for their time and their life. And so Jesus uses this idea, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? I want you to think about this idea. We live in a nation suffering from moral decay at an alarming rate. Our society is getting more rotten by the day. And like salt, we must come into contact with our corrupting culture to slow down the process of decay. And as salt, our job is to preserve the goodness that still exists in our society. And if we don't speak out, you follow me? If we don't speak out against moral evil, we've lost our saltiness. Now, is that type of message going to be readily accepted in a lot of situations? Is, is standing up against moral decay going to be popular with our culture? No. But it's, it's kind of like salt getting in a wound. You ever had salt get in a cut? What does it do? It burns. But what else does it do? It cleanses, doesn't it? You see, salt can cleanse as well. It can bring an antiseptic to our society, even though it might irritate it. It can bring it back into a clean and holy place before God once again. But the problem Jesus identifies is that some people have lost their saltiness. Some people have lost their saltiness. Now in the day of Jesus, the salt usually came from the Dead Sea. And it wasn't really just completely pure salt because it would get kind of meshed up with other rocks and other minerals. So you could have something that looked like salt, and then when you finally poured it on your food or used it to cure something, it was, it was rotten. And there was no way at the time to restore the saltiness or to take the, the bad minerals out and to have just pure salt. So he says, look, if, if, if salt loses its saltiness, it's basically good for one thing, and, and that's to just kind of be gravel. Like, that's, that's all it's good for. It's not even good for the manure pile. I mean, look. And, and so he's telling us, look, people who are following me, if you lose your saltiness, you're worthless. Now, that's a challenging statement coming from Jesus, isn't it? We love a Jesus who is caring and loving and, and completely accepting, but He says, if you've lost your saltiness, you're worthless to Me. Don't even follow Me. Count the cost. Understand that you can't make a difference because you're not willing to make a difference because you've chosen to lose that saltiness of your life. Now, luckily for us, we live in a culture and a society where salt can be made into pure salt. All the negative things can be taken out of it. And we can go to the grocery store and there it is, just pure salt. And the same is true in our life. That we can choose to lose our saltiness, but because of our relationship with Christ, he can come into our life. He can take those negative things out. He can pull away the impure things in our life and make us salty once again. So, are you a real, are you a real disciple? Are you working toward that in your life? Or are you just focused on being a person in the church building? 
That's a challenge for some people. They think just being here makes them right with God. And that's not always the truth. Our challenge and our goal in life is to be a disciple. Those are the last things that Jesus asked of us is to go in the world and make disciples, which means we need to be one and we need to create them. And are you willing to do that? There is a God. If this program has been beneficial to you, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. Also, we'd love for you to leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist us in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. We'd love even more for you to join us in person. We are located at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. Our Sunday worship services are at 1030 a.m., and 6 o'clock p.m. with Bible classes on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and Wednesday evenings at 6.30. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Be sure to listen again, and until then, remember, we are a Church of Christ caring for our community.